Pamela. I'm excited to see where we go today. Who knows? Oh, we have another great adventure. And we have got, back by popular demand, one of the very, well, he is the very best attorney I know. And okay. absolute rock star in a courtroom. Rich is with us again today. Say hello, Rich. Hi, Pamela. Hi, Shelley. Hi, Rich. Before we get into the hard stuff, I want to read a couple more quotes from actual court stuff that just make me laugh. Oh, dear. <laughs> so... <laughs> So the first first one, the attorney asks, what gear were you in at the moment of impact? Witness, Gucci sweats and Reeboks. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I really like this one. And th this one actually reminds me a lot of the attorneys that were involved in Jeremy's case. Oh, dear. Uh, the, 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 the attorney asks, she had three children, right? Witness, yes. How many were boys? Witness, none. Were there any girls? Witness, your honor, I think I need a different attorney. Can I get a new attorney? <laughs> now you're making fun. Oh, just a little bit, just a little bit. But Rich, we love you. You're amazing. Yes. We do. Oh, we do love you. Oh, I feel loved today. Yeah. Yes, I can see that. <laughs> okay, so today we are finally going to be done with all of the trial crazy, crazy stuff. Because today we're talking about the appeal and resentencing. Remember, number six had just negotiated to get 700000 out of the FTC case, which add that to the three fifty that they had already received. So they've got over a million dollars. So everyone knows, I actually don't resent attorneys, professional people making a lot of money for what they do? Neither do I, Pamela. <laughs> <laughs> I think attorneys yeah. should make all the money they can. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I disagree with you on that statement. I, but, I, but, I, I don't uh, know. I'm thinking, hey. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So, uh, it's not that I, I just think if you're going to charge a million dollars, damn it, you better work a million dollars worth of work. Right. So this is how it came down. So they get a million dollars and now Jeremy gets sentenced to that crazy sentence. The judge gave him 11 years. Yeah. On a sentence that guidelines were six months. So it was absolutely crazy, crazy yeah. sentencing enhancement that the level of, of increase that they did was insane. I'd never seen it before. And so I was like, okay, good. Like number six is going to appeal this. Let's do this quickly. Like you got to hurry and, and prepare that appeal. You have to file it with the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals. It's not a guarantee if you file an appeal that they will listen to your case. Oh, uh, wait, it, I thought that was part of your um, rights that you could appeal. You can. You can appeal. That doesn't mean they're going to listen to you. They can just toss well, it out. They can uh, just say, you have no grounds for appeal. That happens a oh, lot. Okay. It happens more often than not. Most of the time, people will appeal, but they won't actually get a hearing. Okay, so wait a minute. Maybe I'm misunderstanding. So I'm going to jail and I can appeal. They'll read through my appeal and decide whether it has merit or not. Yes. They don't just like toss it. They read through it and say, mm, she doesn't have enough. Kick her out. Right. Okay. Exactly. Okay. 
Well, right. it gets a little bit more complicated than that, though. Some appellate issues, you have to raise them at the trial court level. For example, if you think a judge made a wrong decision about whether to include or exclude certain evidence, if you didn't object at trial about, say, including uh, a hearsay statement or something that wasn't uh, very credible, if you, okay. if you were present in court and you didn't object and say, Your Honor, this, or like they did with Pamela, when they told you you were incredible, and you thought they meant not credible. Remember that? Yeah, that's it. Well, I, no. no, I think it was the other way around. I think I thought they meant incredible. And I think the judge said not credible. Oh, yeah. He was oh. wrong. He was totally wrong, of course. But, yeah, right. Told, right. When, yeah. You told me differently when you told me that story. <laughs> you, said, you said he said you were incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, instead of yeah not that's credible. my story, and and I am sticking to that story. That's right. Yes, but, but there are certain objections that you need to make at like the trial level or the briefing okay. phase of a case in order to preserve that, so that you don't waste the court's time by just assuming that if you don't do something at trial, you'll have another chance at it. It's really okay. a pretty good rule. It really improves the efficiency of trial work because it puts lawyers. You got to be on your toes during yes, a trial. Okay. You, you have to be paying attention. Okay. So somewhere in this process, the judge said, you can appeal this. Yeah. You can take that up on appeal. He would on say appeal. it all the time. Yeah. When he said that, does that document like, oh, now you have a reason to appeal? Well, I think the judge is conceding. Look, we have a difference of opinion and you have made your objection on the record that preserves the issue for appeal. Okay. On they the have hand, to object. Like Rich just said, they have to do the objection on the record. Now, in Jeremy's case and in Ryan's case, they'd never practiced law before. So yeah, this was how their first in the time. world, sure. this is their first time practicing law. Sure. And it's for their own lives to, it, their lives are on the line. How do they know when to say, I object to this so that if we lose, I can appeal this later? Gotcha. So a okay. lot of the issues went over their heads that they oh, should okay. have done that. There were a couple that Marcus had made the objection and right. Jeremy joined him on it. And they used that later on appeal. Okay. So Jeremy's going to prison and I'm saying, okay, like we want to get this appeal filed as soon as possible because you're not guaranteed that they're going to let you have a hearing at okay. the appellate level. So in Utah, for you to appeal, you go to Colorado to the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals. So the Western uh, states go to okay. Colorado. All right. And you have to submit it and it takes months for them. They are overwhelmed. There are all kinds of people appealing all kinds of things to them. So it takes months for them to even get to it and put it on the calendar that we're gonna review your stuff. And then when they review it, are they going to let you have a hearing? Are they gonna let you have an oral argument? Are they, sometimes they'll say, you don't get an oral argument. We're going to let you file motions. You can just make a, a written argument. We'll let you do that. So I'm thinking, hey, let's not waste any time. Let's not waste a second. Let's jump right into getting this appeal written. And okay. what I learned was number six said, oh, no, no, no. We aren't even going to have the appeal ready to file for a year or a year and a half, it's going to take us a year just to get up to speed. Well, wait a minute. Why? That person was in court. Was it number six? No. Num 
No. Oh. No. no they, it was number the, five that sat there. So I said, hey, I know how I can make this process a lot faster. There were a whole bunch of us that were in court. And what we can do is just tell them, this is significant. Look at this. Look at this. Look at this. So they can skip through all the stuff that is irrelevant. It, it kind of like doing this podcast about it. Yeah. I just picked the parts that I thought were relevant. And yeah. Six could have sat down with Marcus and said, hey, let's go through this. Yeah. Let's figure this out. Tell us where the rocks are and where the alligators are and let's go for it. Let's get this handled. But they didn't want to do that. I personally believe that they didn't want to do that because they wanted the billable hours of hiring attorneys to just sit in their office and And read through trial transcripts. Cha-ching, 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 cha-ching. It's very similar to the receiver to attorney four that sat on his thumbs through the whole trial and just ka-ching, ka-ching, while he didn't do anything to assist us. Right. It's just, I get so frustrated. Yeah, go ahead and bill a lot, but if you're going to bill a lot, do something, Do your job. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it took... Oh, well over a year for them to get up to speed. And that time is while Jeremy's sitting in prison. Ryan is sitting in prison. And both Jeremy and Ryan were appealing. Okay, because Scott was not convicted, so he went right. home. And then yep. Ryan and Jeremy, and are they at the point of the mountain prison, or are they in the county jail waiting to go? No, as soon as they're sentenced, they were in county jails. I think Jeremy was in county jail. I think Ryan may have actually been free. waiting for his sentencing okay i think that they thought ryan was not a risk to flee but jeremy was okay so then once they were sentenced then they're in federal prison and utah doesn't have a federal prison so where were they placed correct so jeremy was in california i don't know where ryan went initially but ryan ended up in arizona for a time and then i believe he's finished the rest of his time in colorado and brian was sentenced to five years okay brian should have gotten zero zero ryan should have been acquitted but so should have jeremy but yeah okay uh so as part of this now remember there's some issues that i think are seriously like should be brought out as part of the appeal of course one of them being Remember attorney number one? Yes. When attorney number one had been threatened by the prosecutors and they said, if you continue to be so diligent and so intense about defending Jeremy, I can't, I don't know the exact words they used, but they threatened him that if you are going to continue to fight so hard for Jeremy Johnson, we Uh will see to it that you do not get another reasonable plea from the federal, from the U.S. Attorney's Office again. Right. Mm -hmm. And number one was fairly new as an attorney in his career. Uh So to get word that, wait, I will never get another reasonable plea. It's a huge threat. I think that wouldn't have been just a threat. That was a promise. They would have seen to it that that guy was put out of business. But it should never have happened. Right. Yeah. And if you recall from our previous episodes, way, way back, because we were going clear back to number one, I ran into number one and I said, is this true? Because I thought, you know, clients think this crap all the time and it doesn't really happen. So I questioned him, is this true? Did this happen? Mm -hmm. And he said, Mm -hmm. yeah, it happened. And I said, there may come a time when we need you to testify about this. Will you testify? And he said, yeah, it's true. It happened. And I said, great. That's all I needed to know. Well, fast forward years until they're working on the appeal. 
Number six calls attorney number one and starts questioning number one about this. I guess he is, was older than I thought because he had amnesia. He could not remember. Oh, you got to be kidding. Okay. Nope. So wow. when I tell people all the time, like, hey, you really need a lawyer that, like, here's your PI tip of the day. Make sure your lawyer's going to fight for you. Make sure that they're passionate yeah. about yeah. your defense. Mm-hmm. And I see this all the time where people are cowards. Most people, I think, are cowards. And when things get tough, they run and hide. So when someone doesn't, when someone is there in a foxhole with you, and that is why I have told you guys over and over, like, I am absolutely in awe of these defendants. And it brings tears in my eyes every time I talk about them. Mm -hmm. That they had the courage to fight that battle, literally by themselves, two of the three, without even attorneys. Okay. Yeah, for sure. And Scott could have taken a plea also. And he didn't take a plea. That these guys didn't just plead out. And Jeremy was telling them, go ahead, say whatever the government wants you to say. Throw me under the bus. Mm -hmm. Just save yourselves. Get out. Because that's the kind of guy Jeremy is. Yeah. Like, that they didn't do that. Their courage, their character. As you learn more about the people that were around them, I hope everyone has seen why I was so... I'm still in awe of who these people are. Because attorney number one, like, oh, suddenly, I don't remember. I don't remember it like that. Really? Really? Did you? Are you sure you got through law school? Like, come on, man. Either you're really not that smart or you're just lying. Yeah. It's it's one of the two. And neither one of those are really good alternatives. Yeah. He's scared. Mm -hmm. Number one was scared. I get it. Then number two, there should have been an appealable action because of the, the seizing the privileged emails. Right. But because as attorneys three and four, now when Rich was explaining, there's a process. You have to object. You have to complain. Attorneys number three and four didn't object, didn't complain. They didn't do a damn thing about that. Yeah. And then the judge ruled and said that I am not credible. And like Rich said, I think they're all wrong. I am incredible. (laughs) (laughs) There's no way I screwed that up. That's right. Like, come on. Get your verbiage right. Makes yeah. a big difference. It made a huge difference in this yeah. case. So there should have been, in my opinion, the privileged emails, the, the seizure of over 5,000 privileged emails that the government seized of Jeremy's yeah. communications with his attorneys. And they did the same thing to Scott Levitt. They did the same thing to Ryan Riddle. They had all their stuff. Yeah. And I, ugh, it just makes me crazy. So that wasn't even an issue. That wasn't even... Number six didn't even investigate that. And I think part of that is number six was, is probably intimidated by number two. But oh, yes. whatever. Okay, yeah. Whatever. Me too. That's why I call him number two. So, <laughs> and there are other reasons I call him number two. But yes. anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I'm funny sometimes. You are. So, <laughs> then the next appealable issue. Oh, oh. Number three, remember attorney number three had represented, oh man, this was a big issue and we did the the episode a while back. We knew that there was affiliate fraud that was happening that was doing all these chargebacks that were causing problems in Jeremy's Mm -hmm. company. And there was a guy that was the most guilty, most culpable of all of the people out there that were doing this. Uh And of course we were going to shine a light on that in trial 
And number three did not disclose to Jeremy that number three had represented that, that person. person. That's right. Okay. And not only represented them, but represented them in interviews with the FBI, with the U.S. Attorney's Office, with the lead prosecutor. So the lead prosecutor was there. Number three was there. The lead investigator, Jamie Hipwell, was there. All these people were there. And they made Jeremy go into court. Remember this. They made him go in and, and say, like, oh, I have, like, I waived my, the conflict because number three had represented a cousin of his. Right. And Jeremy was like, I don't care. Like, that's yeah. fine. But yeah. they made no mention of the biggest witness in our case. What? Yeah. And I had told Jeremy, I don't trust number four and I don't know number three, but number three and four are together, so I don't have a so, good feeling about it. Yeah, the team is not, yeah. It's not, not a good thing. They're not working for you, Jeremy. Yeah. No, exactly. I said, I don't trust him at all. And next thing Jeremy found out was that number three had represented this witness. Gotcha. Okay. Remember, I told Jeremy, you got to record this. And he's like, are you kidding? Of course I will. Look who you're talking to. And then he went into the meeting, did not record it. And number three started crying when he said, look, here's this interview summary that shows that you were there. You represented this guy. What about this? You guys never disclosed it. Number three starts crying and says, I'm really sorry, but the magistrate judge, not the trial judge, the magistrate judge, because the magistrate judge handles all the issues before it gets to trial. Right. That judge was handling the privileged email decision. He's the one that said I was not credible. That judge was handling the conflict of interest, like all of that. Right. And that attorney starts crying and said, Jeremy, I'm so sorry. I wanted to tell you. But we had a meeting with the magistrate judge and the lead prosecutor, Rob Lennon, and Jason Burt, and everyone agreed to not tell you. That's so not right. It is so not right. So they were going to bring that up in appeal. Number six interviewed and spoke with number three about it and said, did this happen? And number three said, I'm not going to speak about it on the record without a subpoena. Because you can imagine how scared number three is to speak out against the magistrate judge. Sure. So those were some of the appealable issues. Here's the other problem I had with number six. This whole time, okay, when I say they could have talked with Marcus to prep, they could have done all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Did they? No, they didn't. But here, wouldn't you think, would you not think that they would talk to their freaking client? Who yeah. isn't, Jeremy was not just a client. He wasn't just the guy that owned and ran the business and knew everything, all the ins and outs of the business. Uh -huh. He was also his own damn trial attorney. Right, right. So he could have advised them. And here's what number six said. Oh, it's too hard to talk to Jeremy. He's in prison. They won't let me talk to him. What? What? Well, isn't what? that interesting? He's, yeah. Because he, John she, Swallow's attorneys went and saw him twice in prison. Right. The prosecutors prosecuting John Swallow went Listen and saw him in TV, prison. Listen on TV, they let your attorneys in. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Number six should have watched TV. That's right. They should have known. What the hell? So, right. And they would not return phone calls from Jeremy. They wouldn't return phone calls from his family trying to find out what was going on. To me, it's completely unacceptable. You take yes. a million bucks... You answer your damn phone. Yep, 24-7, like, yep. You talk to these people. You do what needs to get done. Right. Oh, it just grinds on me. But number six filed the appeal. Thankfully, it got through that process. It made it so they were going to have a hearing. Well, one of the big issues in that case was that peculiar, it's called Section 1014, 
it makes it a criminal act to make a false statement to a bank that is FDIC insured. The FDIC, of course, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation is a federal law mm -hmm. that regulates federally chartered banks. And the Congress made it a crime to make a false statement to a bank. Well, ordinarily, it's a crime to do something if you intended to do it, number one. Mm -hmm. And number two, if it's material, that it has some consequence that is of some weight. <clears throat> and in this case, false statements that the jury found uh, iWorks to have made were simply putting some wrong numbers on an application. And there was a, another case uh, pending at that time in Chicago, one of the uh, Judge Posner, who's one of the most famous judges in the uh, federal appellate system, was saying that is one of the most horrible laws we have on our books because you could go into a bank and make an application for a new account and invert the numbers in your social security number, for example. Yeah. If it's incorrect, that is technically a false statement to a bank. If you put the wrong address, the wrong telephone number, uh, the wrong name for your children or anything, it's false. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially what the crime was here, that there were wrong numbers on applications, not that they had any consequence. The banks really didn't rely on the numbers, but the courts have held that they don't have to rely on them. It doesn't have to be significant. It doesn't have to be material. And the burden of acquiring that there was some influence that the bank relied on that statement doesn't exist. That's so crazy. It is crazy, yeah. but it is the state, or at that point, was the state yeah. of federal law. You okay. could be convicted. And the this Judge Posner had made a big issue of that. He said, this is wrong that somebody can be convicted just for making a mistake that has no consequence. Okay. And that, that's, in fact, why these uh, false statements to a bank were so immaterial. There was no showing that those statements that. resulted in any harm to anyone. Wow. Yeah. So remember number six had said that they won almost every appellate thing they'd ever yes. done. And then, or, and then they didn't even everyone, do it. But that wasn't true. Well, in this case, whatever they wrote in the appeal was good enough that it was heard, but they did make some decisions and sadly, Ah, just killed me. They did some things incorrectly in how they wrote the appeal, how they prepared the appeal. And so even the appellate judges in their ruling, in their decision, basically they're saying, we wish that we could rule in favor on this because we get what you're saying. But because of the way that the attorneys wrote it, we can't look at it. Like there's so many hoops that you have to jump through okay. in the okay. legal system. And so number six, who always wins everything, wrote it in such a way that they couldn't rule in Jeremy's favor, even though they would have liked to. And that was like their words. It was almost like they were like, we're really sorry, we'd like to. We'd like to do this, but because of the way it's written, we can't. Like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? But the good news was, now remember all that stuff I was so complaining because they used all that money as a potential loss? It's true, there was no money lost, but all the money that was gained, they flipped that. And it was a perfect storm because to use acquitted conduct and all of that, to, like that doesn't usually happen. It rarely happens, but I think when the government's desperate, they use it. And 
to have a judge that would allow it like this that that a prosecutor would even try to use it and then the judge would allow it is just like this incredibly unfortunate set of events gotcha because of that it enhanced it it did not just a one level enhancement because the sentencing guidelines were zero to six months to jump to get like 11 years in prison they did a six level enhancement oh so the money that was gained that the banks made what they said is well if jeremy hadn't had the money in the bank and hadn't money to pay those fees they could have lost the money which to me just seems like the most bass awkward thing i've ever seen ever yeah. but he did have the money there we're gonna send him to prison because right right again because there was right. no hardship yeah yeah the good news is the appellate court did agree that it should not have been a six level enhancement that the trial judge erred in that enhancement Gotcha. And okay. so they, they remanded it back to federal court. So here's the bad news. When they say, yeah, the judge made a mistake, they don't just fix it right there. They send it back to the trial judge for the trial judge to fix it. Well, how well do you think we thought of that idea? Yeah, no. Not at all. No. We don't have any confidence in that trial judge giving no. Jeremy or and Ryan a fair shot. No. And so I was still talking with Jeremy and Sharla and everyone agreed they didn't want to use number six for this. And thankfully for the like first, not first time, because Jeremy used Rich in the David and Goliath case on the FTC. But finally, Jeremy was listening to, and he brought in my favorite rock star attorney ever rich to do resentencing oh my gosh was i yes. so grateful for that yes 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 okay and rich teamed up with another guy in salt lake that was prominent well you and i have talked before about everyone in the process has to do his or her job in order for yes. the system to work yes and in this case we had a peculiar actor who i think if she hadn't been there hadn't been involved in this case none of this would have been corrected. And that person is Jeremy's wife, Sharla. Oh. She was the one yeah. who was the force behind this thing. We have to do something about this sentence. Oh my gosh, she was amazing. Seriously. I learned a new word and you have to be careful when you pronounce it. It's indefatigable. Indefatigable. In Okay. Indefatigable, meaning incapable of being fatigued. Oh. You're relentless. You're tired. She's like a workhorse. Yeah. 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 A workhorse. But Jeremy's wife, when she got hold of this project to appeal this sentence, she took that like a grizzly bear. I mean, oh, wow. uh, without her pushing this, she was, uh, she was relentless. And... I think we can, particularly Jeremy, could be thankful that she signed on for this because yeah. she was the mover behind it, the force behind it. That's cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's really an interesting because if you met Sharla, truly, she is the most humble, unassuming person you would ever, ever meet. When we talk about that they had millions, like, I don't know how many, hundred and something million at that mm -hmm. point that they'd brought in. I expected, like if I had hundreds of millions, I would have like the coolest saxes and guitars and cars and oh, like yeah. you name it. And House, clothes, yeah. boots. Oh, boots, I could have a lot of money in boots. <laughs> and a brand that new pickleball paddle. 
And, yes. and the, like a very fancy pickleball put. Charlotte, even then, was so unassuming and so just so down to earth. Like, whether they have millions or not have millions, Charlotte is the same. Yeah. Like, always kind. Oh, wow. So, th like, that description that she's in infatigable. Indefatigable. Is, yeah, that. <laughs> yeah. That, it really does describe her, but it, I, like, it would almost make it seem, when he said, like, she was like a grizzly bear, she was, but in, like, the kindest way ever. Like, yeah. she is just so incredibly kind. Always. Always. That's like, cool. way kinder than I am. <laughs> like, that's kind. <laughs> yeah. You know, that led us to one of the real issues that we saw when we took on this idea of challenging the sentence and asking for a resentence. Because if you look at this case, and I attended a lot of the trial. I didn't, I wasn't there every day, all day but it was a fascinating trial. And one of the things that fascinated me about it was the incredibly complex nature of the factual situation. You were uh -huh. talking about dealing with some of the largest corporations and businesses in the world, Wells Fargo Bank, Chase Bank, Goldman Sachs, right. all these people who are making billions. If you think about the amount of credit card transactions that are undertaken and processed in the United States every year, it gets close to the hundreds of billions and close to the trillions of dollars in the world. And one of the assumptions that I think people made was, this is something we can understand in 30 seconds. Gotcha. And one of the great assumptions that we made, that the court made and the prosecutors tried to uh, encourage in this case was that Jeremy Johnson and his group of guys from St. George, Utah, were smarter than Wells Fargo, Chase Bank, and all their lawyers, and all right. their investors, and all mm -hmm. their uh, systems designers, and all their yeah. department heads, and all their accountants, and all their CPAs who designed systems that they wanted uh, to be profitable. Yeah. And Jeremy yeah. Johnson, they said, outsmarted them. Yeah, yeah. No. Out yeah. Outsmarted all out of them. Yeah. 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 They figured out a way of getting money away from them without their knowing it. That yeah. is so absurd. You just think yeah, about it. Is. it. It really is. St. George, Utah figured out how to topple the world's banking system and credit yes, card. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. start with that. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, that, that led us to, uh, it led me anyway, to a conclusion. You know what? I had represented. Wells Fargo when I was with a firm. And uh -huh. uh, I'd been a CPA for the world's largest CPA firm. You oh, know, wow. uh -huh. I know the trouble that they go to to protect the profitability of their functions. Sure. And it was almost tragic that we created a situation where the judge in this case was supposed to understand that entire process and make a decision about it based on just a couple of witnesses told him how the system works. It just wasn't fair. Right. So I want to say one thing about Sharla. Yes. I really think it's telling uh -huh. that not only stood by her man, by her husband, but that she yeah. fought so hard for him through this appeal and through all of these stages. I'm sure, I'm, you know, it's devastating. It tears your life apart. 
not only financially yeah. but emotionally and your children and everything else and you're trying to keep all the pieces together but I love it that it shows how much faith she had in her husband and how truly she yeah. believed that he was innocent that she would fight like that fight so hard and never yeah never give up yeah. that's amazing yeah. very very impressive yeah yeah but we had a pretty limited issue to investigate and the a pretty limited scope of the resentencing and that was the determination of loss the loss enhancement so mm -hmm. it was pretty obvious that we really needed to take a look at this as an accounting issue and you know what here i have a compliment for you rich because talking to charla about this stuff charla said truly every attorney i ever tried and charla is so sharp like she learned this stuff like the back of her hand. She could talk mm -hmm. about all these loss amounts yeah. and to which company and but she could talk about it even today. And she, she still knows this. And Sharla said it was so frustrating trying to explain what the government was using as a loss amount to every mm -hmm. other attorney. And she said, I would try to explain it to him. And it really is so complex. And their eyes would just gloss over. And she said, the only attorney that ever really understood what I was saying was rich. Yeah. Oh, wow. He's That's the only one that compliment. got it. Yeah. Yeah. And she said, I think the only reason Rich got it is because he had a background in accounting. Like Rich right. was just saying, Rich knows the effort that all these companies go to to protect their profit line. Sure. Sure. And, and banks and every, I mean, he's represented banks. He's been on the other side of all this and he being an accountant, he understood it. So yeah. they really did need someone super smart to jump yes. in there that and, not and smart, but that had but understood understanding two completely of it. different things, the law and accounting. That's an amazing yes. yeah, combination. Yeah. Powerful. So it was a perfect combination for him. So Charlotte made sure that we had access to all of the court exhibits, to uh, all of the arguments. So we spent some time gathering the facts and it looked to me like indeed the court had made a mistake in calculating the loss that was the basis for that sentence enhancement. And I thought one of the best things we could do, you know, the probation officers could reduce the sentence without any judicial action. Shortly after I filed my notice of appearance, I thought, why don't I go talk to the probation officer and talk to him about mm -hmm. his pre-sentence investigative report and show him how it appears that the court has made a mistake. And would you like to cooperate with us in investigating the magnitude of that mistake? Mm -hmm. And so I did, I went and sat down with the probation officer, went through my findings and invited him to work through this in a just an informal way and see if we could agree that this sentencing enhancement had been wrongly imposed. Oh, okay. And guess what happened? What? Tell me. Nothing. Oh. <laughs> I never got Nothing? a response. And, and Oh, the, you didn't hear from that person. Never heard back from him. And we follow up and say, oh my gosh, well, we're going to have to do something different. We're wow. actually going to have to go to the sentencing judge and ask him to revise his decision. Now, that was a really hard decision for us. Because yeah. you know how hard it is to publicly admit that you got something wrong. Right, right, right. And this judge wasn't about to make any of that kind of stuff. Exactly. And or I can't imagine that he did. What? Yeah. But to present this case, I thought, what if we did the same thing for the judge and said, look, 
this is an incredibly complex case. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of information presented in a very short time. There are lots of reasons to believe that we may have gotten this number wrong. And maybe what we need in this case is a fresh look uh -huh. rather than have <laughs> you go through it. And so we invited the judge to step away from this case and allow someone else to take it over and hear mm -hmm. our resentencing appeal. And guess what? He said, okay, I Wait will do that. And he stepped down and recused himself. I thought that was one of the most incredible things that I've ever seen. Yeah, it's that's shocking to wait, me. Wait, 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 wait a minute. Rich is describing this. You know how, you know, I don't know if you've ever watched an athlete that's really good at something, mm -hmm. and it looks so easy that you're like, uh -huh. man, that guy should have done this. I would have done this. I bet yeah. I could. Uh -huh. And then you go do it, and it's not, and you're like, yeah. not mm -hmm. even close to that easy, and you realize. Rich just described this process as like just so easy and smooth. Uh-huh. That's just because Rich is that smart and that uh. good. Okay. But it was also it, the right thing to do. And absolutely, it was the right thing to do. It's like I said before, and like you and I say, everybody has to do his part. And I think yes. that was really a good thing that the judge in this case recognized that a fresh look at this might be a good thing. Yeah. Yep. That was to his credit. In my opinion, I'm not sure that that's why he stepped aside. I think he didn't want to be embarrassed. But you can stick with your story. And I will stick with my story. <laughs> but it's interesting because I would have thought for sure the other guy, what was the first one? He was the probation officer. Or, or the I would have thought, oh, the probation officer would be in touch and you'd be able to, you know, answer some questions stuff. Crickets. And then when you, you know, do all your research and follow through all this stuff and then approach the judge, I thought he was going to say, hell no. And yet he does. So it's, it's weird. Again, another weird twist in this whole well, here's Path. why I think the judge wasn't doing it out of the goodness of justice or what was right. I think uh -huh. the judge was doing it to protect his name and his reputation. That's my oh, okay. opinion. Rich can say that he did it because it was the right thing to do. And again, you can have your story and I'm, mine is, mm -hmm. I think the judge didn't want to be embarrassed. I gotcha. think this is okay. the first time you and I have disagreed, Pamela. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny, too. So, ah. so what that means is now they have a new judge and they're going to have a resentencing hearing. Okay. A resentencing hearing. The news is everywhere. Again, this is like front page news. Rich is the guy to argue. And you know what? The prosecutors on the case... The lead prosecutor on Jeremy's trial at this point had gone to be a judge in some other court. Okay. And then the guy that I would consider number two on the prosecution team had moved back east. And the two lawyers that Karen Foytek and Don't Touch My Ty Kennedy gotcha. were the only ones left. And those guys made the most weak, pathetic, pathetic arguments I've ever heard at resentencing to try it like begging the judge to... Like, no, no, please, please don't. And this was in front of Judge D. Benson, whom I have a lot of respect for. He has since oh, okay. passed away. But I loved Judge Benson, and I was excited that he was going to be the judge listening to this. And Rich was an absolute rock star, smooth as butter. Yeah. Man, that guy was, like, just impressive. That was yeah. awesome. Sexy as hell. I loved it. <laughs> he got up there, argued. Like, oh, man, that was cool. And it was interesting because 
Judge Benson, like he started it out basically saying, I don't want to re hear all of this trial. I don't want to hear all the facts of this. It was almost like, please don't bother me with facts because I'm not going to hear it. The previous judge had six weeks of trial and I'm not going to try to undo his whole experience. And Rich said, but your honor, like, can I get this put on the record? The kind of like he did with Judge Dew in Nevada. Yeah. Yeah. Like, well, can I just talk? And Rich always thinks outside the box. He's amazing. Yeah. And so Judge Benson was like, okay, I'll let you talk. Like, go ahead. It was seriously like, I'll let you put it on the record, but you're not going to influence me. Yeah. And we already knew he had to reduce it from a six-level enhancement to a two-level because of what the appellate judges had said. So we were already coming in with that advantage. But then Rich just knocked it out of the park, like explaining how this works how and like simplifying it making it like it was just beautiful and it was so nicely done and then the judge gave jeremy a chance to respond it's a pretty simple calculation Go well ahead. simple for whom yeah for, exactly for you'll, you'll be surprised shelly how simple this yeah. was i will be if the parties in this case had been allowed to talk about what it means to, to the bank's loss if the bank had put on the witness stand, their chief financial officer, and said, what does it cost you for a chargeback? Now, they had established during this case that the cost of a chargeback is $25. Every chargeback, meaning every time a credit card charge Mm -hmm. has to be reversed. Right. Okay. Cost the bank $25. Nobody challenged that. I mean, it was a, a witness who said that's what it costs. Well, how do you know? Well, he didn't know. Well, part of our preparation for this was to find someone who knew what it costs a bank to do a chargeback. And the number is simple, less than $3. Oh, you're kidding. So the bank, they process hundreds of thousands of these things. Right. However, in chargeback fees, Jeremy paid millions in chargeback fees to the bank. Well, the bank charged him $25 for each one. It cost them $3 okay. and change. So let's say they make $21. They make, they earn $21. That chargeback right. goes against Jeremy and his merchant account and the deposit mm-hmm. that he made. They charge Jeremy 25 bucks for that chargeback. They pay three bucks in costs they make a profit of $21 and change for every chargeback. Okay. Okay. So in addition to that, they issue fines to the credit card processor. Okay. Yeah. In addition to making a profit on every one of those chargebacks, we calculated by going through the bank's records that had been introduced that they also made an additional almost $3 million from those extra fines that they charged iWorks. So not only are they making money on each transaction, they're also making additional money on the uh, fees and chargebacks. Oh, that shouldn't come to a surprise that somebody in Manhattan or in the chief executive offices of Wells Fargo or Chase Bank figured out how to make money by issuing charge cards. No wonder you see so many charge card advertisements on TV. It is a very, very profitable business. Yeah. And if it were not profitable, they wouldn't issue charge cards. Right. Right. So it was a very simple argument to make. And the facts, we had enough facts in 
the record that we could recreate those. And we figured that rather than a, a loss, the banks made somewhere between one and $5 million on those chargebacks rather than losing uh, something like, oh, what was it? I'm trying to remember. What was it, Pamela? The like two or three hundred thousand dollars they claimed to have lost they actually right. made somewhere between one and five million so and that's that's just on the chargebacks that yeah. doesn't count any anything else because they were making money on top i mean so they were making money off of jeremy coming and going and oh, every which yeah. way they could yeah it's ridiculous wow yeah it was really a travesty but it was actually kind of a, a fun case we had a great expert witness who who did the analysis of the books we had a, a a very highly respected expert in financial transactions do an expert analysis of how these chargebacks works and it was pretty clear there was no loss in fact i think right. i made a statement like that to judge benson you did nobody ever lost a penny on any iWorks transaction. Nobody. It it was such a powerful argument. Yeah. And did he actually listen? Did he hear that, the judge? I don't know. If he did, I it, what it felt like is like he listened and then he made a statement almost like, well, I don't want to make my fellow colleague look bad. That was the essence of what he was saying. Yeah. So, and that's, that's the human part of this too, isn't it, Pam? Yeah. I think we all think highly of Judge Benson. He was not just a great judge. He was also a great human being, I think. Yeah, and, I uh, agree. I think he had some sense that he ought to preserve the integrity of the judicial system. That would be mm -hmm. a big incentive for him. And yes, yeah, it would. I think he did what he could, and he didn't want to embarrass anybody. Gotcha. And, and he gave Jeremy a chance to speak at resentencing. And... I had never seen Jeremy so emotional through yeah. this entire process. He'd always been very, pretty stoic. It, you know, you got to act tough and yeah. stand tall and be strong. Yeah. And uh, it was like they had broken a part of him. Yeah. And, and Jeremy was crying through almost his entire statement. And yeah. I will never forget, like, the love that he expressed for Sharla for sticking by him was... Oh, like, yeah, I, I was trying to find a quote of the words that he said, but it was so moving. I was just crying in the courtroom, listening to what he was saying. And he was so respectful and so grateful for Sharla, so grateful for his family for sticking by him, for his friends for sticking by him. And then Judge Benson, he, he listened, he had to reduce it some. If I'd heard the argument, I would have been like, Hey, <laughs> marshals, take those cuffs off of him right now. Let's let this boy go home. This is not right. 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 But instead, he reduced it from 11 years down to seven. Oh, okay. Which was not what I was hoping for, but it was progress. And like yes. Tony Robbins always says, progress is happiness. As long as we're making some progress, right. we right. can find some joy in it. So right. I was hopeful and joyful about that. And then, thankfully... When COVID hit, because of COVID, and the prisons didn't know what to do with that crisis, the, with the whole pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so what the prisons started doing, the federal prisons anyway, I know, they were releasing nonviolent offenders. Right. And Jeremy, of course, is a nonviolent offender. So after four years of being in prison, they released Jeremy home to serve the rest of his time on probation with an ankle monitor and all of that. So... 
there are some good players. There's some great guys. There's some, so this is just like life. It's just, you know, you have people that are courageous and people that run and hide behind a rock. Yeah. And thankfully I met some of the most courageous, beautiful souls I've ever met in my life through this trial. And some of them people call them defendants and criminals. And I am just in awe of them. And I'm in awe of people like Troy Rawlings and Rich. I am grateful for the experience. And like Jeremy said in that letter a couple episodes ago when I read the letter where he said, if they would give me all of my stuff back, my business back, everything back, but I would have to also give back everything I've learned, I would not do it. I am so grateful for where I am. And like him, I am grateful for where I am. It's been a really tough process. But a beautiful process. And most of our life lessons, most of the hard things we go through create the most growth in our lives. So please, like everyone listening, if you're going through something hard or have been through, look back at the hard times in your life. I guarantee you what you'll find is as hard as it is, that's where most of our growth comes. So we can find light at the end of the tunnel and beautiful things that come out of it. Speaking of light at the end of the tunnel, yeah. at the end of this hearing, we invited Charlotte to speak, ask the court if she could talk. She was not expecting that. You remember that? Oh, I do, I do, can I, yeah. Can I read you what she said, some parts of it? Please, okay. please. Yeah, I'm, I'm reading from the transcript. And at the end of, of our presentation, uh, we asked if she could address the court. Well, she was, uh, she was pretty emotional. Oh, Oh, how could you not be? Yeah. And I get a little bit emotional just reading this. She says, are you the defendant's wife? The judge Benson asked. I am your honor, Charlotte Johnson. Sorry, I was not expecting this. She was nervous. Mm -hmm. (laughs) My heart is pounding because I have actually dreamed of this day for years now. And I hope that what I say can be taken I have watched for eight years now in disbelief as this has come down. I was there in the business and I knew everybody that worked there. I knew Jeremy, obviously, and I have known him and we have been married for 20 years now. As I told you in the letter, she had written him a letter. Okay. We have two daughters. They were three years old and eight years old when all this started. Can you imagine going through that? Wow. These young girls. Yeah. yeah. They're now yeah. teenagers at this point. And they were talking about their dad. They love their father. Uh, they ask me how often. They ask me often, when do I get to see my dad again? Oh. When can we go visit our father? Think about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What a what an interesting thing. What a oh, I, I can't imagine the emotional. They are brilliant children. They go, they love their father. They ask me how often when do we get to see my dad again? When can we go visit our father? We go down, he was most recently before Davis County, he was incarcerated in Safford, Arizona. And we went down as often as possible. It is a trek. We play games and we visit him and we have a great time and they love him and they are proud of him. Now think about that. Wow. They are proud of him. Yeah. They respect him as their father and they deserve to spend what is left of their childhood having their father back. Wow. 
Wow. I, How long had he been in prison by the time the appeals, you were able to meet with the judge? To get to this point? Uh-huh. This was like three years, I think. This is Charlotte's closing statement to the judge. Your Honor, I truly in my heart know that what happened here was never intended. While there were mistakes made, yes, there were. But I feel that he has paid that debt over and over and over again in the last few years. I hope that you will take what I say here today, and I hope that you will give him a chance. I truly do. Wow. I think, wow. you know, we can take credit for legal work, uh, but... That was I powerful. Think... That made me cry. That was yeah. intense. That yeah. was like reliving yeah. that. Wow. Yeah. She really is a powerhouse, and she does it in such a soft beautiful so, way so yeah. i think if anybody deserves credit for getting this done right it is charla wow wow that's amazing i do too mm -hmm. so we have actually just a few more things so i've got some, i've got some surprises coming um we're done with all the hard stuff the next the next few episodes i think for everyone especially if you've been following all along the next few episodes are going to just be like really cool really fun i'm excited to share it with you and thank you rich for for sharing your heart and taking a risk and stepping forward and thanks for your courage to stand up and fight because seems like yeah. we're just kind of short on on good tough guys anymore yes. mm -hmm. so thank you everyone for listening to pamela private eye